Power and Responsibility. The Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Echelon Data Centers. Welcome to Power and Responsibility, the Data Center's podcast. Data centers are essential infrastructure without which we wouldn't have 5G, we wouldn't have e-commerce, we wouldn't be watching uh, the latest movies on Netflix, we wouldn't have artificial intelligence, and we wouldn't have the Internet of Things. The issue of data centers and power consumption is a hot topic at the moment, with people fearing that data centers sucking the power out of national grids will lead to rolling blackouts, and people not being able to boil the kettle during the ad break in their favorite TV program. The issue of sustainability uh, is one that's also incredibly important in the data center landscape. I'm Jeremy Probert, and I'm joined today by John McNamara, who is Corporate Sustainability Lead at Board Namona, a company that is transitioning from being a fossil fuel producer to being a climate solutions provider, which today produces 300 megawatts of wind energy with another 500 megawatts of renewables in the pipeline. John, hi, how are you? Good afternoon, Jeremy. How are you? Well, thank you very much indeed. We'll jump straight into it. Uh, I know you've had years and years of experience looking at corporate sustainability and the issues that surround it. I think very much that sustainability is a much maligned term, and I'm not sure that everyone wholly understands what it means. Could you give us your thoughts on sustainability, the thing, and what it is? It is a very fair question, and it's it's one of those topics that's becoming more mainstream, and I think it means different things to different people. I, I suppose maybe just before I start, my own background has come through uh, the Irish EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. We're looking at the monitoring of waste and recycling facilities, and then subsequently with Board Namona in relation to the uh, Irish power sector, and have been working in that area with Board Namona, particularly on its renewables ambition for the last uh, number of years, and now working on the uh, corporate sustainability. As you said, it is gaining traction in the mainstream. But I think there is a lot of confusion and maybe constructed confusion as to what sustainability actually means. And I suppose, to be fair here, I suppose this is my own interpretation as I've seen it over the last while and probably not to be attributed to Board Namona's uh, own position on this. So it's very much my own views here. Uh, and And I suppose at a very high level, corporate sustainability is essentially remaining financially viable continually generating value for shareholders and engaging with stakeholders in a non-destructive, long-term value-creating way. Or there's another way of looking at it, a lot simpler, is that the purpose of a sustainable business is to provide profitable solutions to the problems of people and the planet and not to profit from producing problems for the people and the planet. (laughs) But I suppose in some respects, we do need to dig in and get down to more metric-driven and and to understand what sustainability means in practice. And I suppose where that is leading to is this concept of ESG or a environmental social governance that sits across how a company conducts itself in doing its business. And and that's broader than what you would have had in financial profit as a metric as to how the business measures itself. You talked about ESG, which leads nicely into my next question, really, which is there are a lot of moving bits in sustainability and a sustainability effort. Clearly, one of those is environmental impact. 
I do think that there is a misconception that sustainability equals environmental uh, friendliness. But there is a lot more to it than that. So what do you consider to be the most important bits of a sustainable or sustainability strategy? Again, a very fair question. Again, very topical. And maybe if we break down the three pillars of ESG and, and maybe work backwards, in some respects, G is the, the governance side. G stands for governance and the corporate governments, governance of the organization. I, I, I suppose in some respects, on a philosophical level, it's the ethics that the business uses, okay, and the ethics that's implied. On a more mundane, it's it's effectively its risk management strategy as to how risk or risk averse a particular organization is. But more importantly, at a corporate governance level, you require your board and your senior management team to embed a sustainable ethos throughout the organization. Okay. And I suppose within the organization, one of the most important assets of any organization is its people. And that's where you begin to see the S, the social side of the uh, ESG definition. And critical to that is health and safety of the workforce. You know, these are, you have somebody come in eight o'clock in the morning, you want them going home at five o'clock in the the same physical state that they left, the same mental state as well, I might add. That sort of feeds into working conditions. And that's interesting because that's just not in the organization itself. There's an onus on the organization to look up and down its supply chain, okay? On the social side, again, within the organization, you know, how you uh, engage with employees, your diversity, inclusivity policies that you have in, in the business. But then also, and critically from third parties, it's probably the other critical part of the social part of the ESG is the impact and engagement with local communities and how you engage there. And then Getting back to your original or the, the start of your question, when you're into the environmental sector, it's you're right. We'll talk about climate adaptation in a moment or climate risk at the moment, but you're also talking about sort of resource management, uh, water, waste, uh, energy efficiency, how you use your resources as well. And then I think, you know, we are getting to, dare I say, the, the piece that's very topical at the moment, and rightly so, is the whole climate risk adaptation. And in this instance, adaptation meaning how, how an organization can reduce its carbon impact, as there is, I think, you know, there's irrefutable evidence that it's anthropogenic impact that's causing climate change. And the root cause of that is the combustion of fossil fuel uh, generating CO2. So from a sustainability point of view, while it does encompass the environmental, the social and the governance side from, from a corporate point of view, reducing CO2 is uh, paramount. That explains it very clearly for me. Uh, and I think I'm starting to get the bigger picture now. Uh, the sustainability piece covers everything, the human aspect, community aspect, the, the social aspect, corporate governance and environmental if I can ask you to talk a bit about Board and Amona without giving away any trade secrets, because I know that you're doing this in a personal capacity, but Board and Amona is an interesting one because uh, it's gone from being what it was to what it is now. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that, that was driven by a, a sustainability impetus and external factors, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Just wondering if you could give me a a sort of broad outline of how, what that change is, the exa- and, and the yeah. sort of examples. Possibly, I'll be rude and correct you and saying it's not so much we've gone, but we're going. So we're still transitioning, Excellent. and I think 
and I, I, I have a feeling I'll be mentioning the word transition a little bit more <laughs> during the, the course of this podcast, but we have are in the throes of transitioning from what we're calling brown to green. We, we were a peat company, peat harvesting for use as a fuel, very carbon intensive, and we've ceased peat harvesting. We're no longer in the peat extraction business. We have some stocks that are being wound down. But we're moving now to becoming a climate solution organization. And we have three main pillars there. We have the land and property side, which is essentially about the rehabilitation of the peatlands. If we just walked away in the morning, those peatlands would continue to emit carbon from the oxidation of the, the surface layer. We're working on the land there, working with local landowners as well as our neighbours there and are are rehabilitating those peatlands by sort of managed re-wetting of the peatlands, which in the first instance will stop them or or certainly reduce their impact as a carbon source. And in certain cases, there'll be an opportunities for restoration of the peatlands where you'll sort of allow colonization of species to occur that will actually restart the growth of the bog again. That's a slow process and it's not going to happen to the whole estate, but certainly then you will end up having a carbon sink in those areas as well. So that whole pillar around the sort of land use and the rehabilitation restoration is one pillar of our work. And I think it's it's important to realise there's more than just board Namona peatlands out there. There's a lot of other peatlands where our expertise or the organisation's expertise could be employed to utilise the potential of peatlands in terms of carbon management. And, I, and I'm not going to say sequestration or reduction, but management uh, at a level. And that potential is certainly something the organization is looking at. The second pillar is in relation to, and I mentioned it earlier on, is sort of resource recovery. And this is in, in and around sort of waste management, recycling and the like. At the moment, I think Board Namona collects waste from about 135,000 customers uh, around the country. And that's about just shy of half a million tons uh, of material. Now, we have state-of-the-art facilities or the organization state-of-the-art facilities for sort of dry recyclables, you know, your cardboard, your plastics, your paper, your glass. But interestingly, we also have the country's largest tire recycler. So there's about 4 million tires are recycled annually and getting them into a product. And in this instance, there's a degree of reuse as well as the recycling in the sense that you're finding a new use for the, the crumb rubber. And then we have a organic management or organic waste management of 25,000 tons, which has been in, in, in a compost facility as well. And then the third pillar is something which has a nice circular approach to it is sort of the cutaway peatlands where we have worked on for the past 70 years in terms of providing energy security, albeit high carbon intensity energy security for the state, uh, looking at putting renewables, uh, renewable generation on those, in particular wind. Uh, there's a lot of megawatts, uh, board of megawatts across the Midlands and a pipeline for further development there, but also supplementing that with uh, solar and we have biomass and biogas plants as well. Or there's there's biogas at one of the landfills and biomass at one of the power stations, which is transitioning to 100% biomass. So you have the renewable energy, you have the resource recovery, and the uh, peatland rehabilitation as the three main pillars going forward for the organization. In a previous podcast, we've done something on myth busting, and people seem to think that 
data centers suck energy without actually giving anything back, which of course isn't true. But when it comes to energy, what do you think data centers could or should do to become part of the sort of energy economy, if you like? How can they approach this? How can they help? I'm very enthusiastic about the role that data centers play and also the role that they can play in terms of providing load for uh, renewables when other aspects of demand are lower and they're providing a, a constant offtake. And I suppose getting back to the point I was talking about the potential for onshore in Ireland, for me, one of the problems we're seeing is constraints on the grid. I.e., we have potential around the northwest coast, the Midlands, the southeast coast for wind, but our data centers aren't there. So I think you could have a win-win in terms of co-locating data centers closer to the sites where this renewable green energy is produced. So effectively bringing the data centers to the power rather than trying to bring the power to the data centers and the co-location of data centers with renewable energies on sites. That would then allow maybe investment in storage, better battery technology, maybe even electrolysis. But it's not a single solution. It's, it's a system type approach that needs to be adopted. And one aspect of that system could be locating new data centers, which will be needed into locations and co-locating them with renewable generation assets. We are facing an issue at the moment uh, to meet demand. Uh, we're looking at, you know, up to 25% of electricity demand being powered by coal, mm-hmm. which clearly is, for me, a, uh, a step backwards. This is not to do with data centers at all. This is no. to do with a, a lack of investment in infrastructure and the fact that Ireland finds itself in a position where it can't supply the growing demand. And it's, it's placing the blame on the high energy users and data centers are an easy scapegoat for this, which I suppose brings us onto the broader consideration of Ireland and sustainability. How do you think we do as a nation? I think specifically in the electricity sector, we are at something of a lacuna in policy. We're at a gap between policy, okay? We have numerous European policy instruments pushing the decarbonisation of the power sector, be that through plants that can participate in capacity mechanisms, planning restrictions. All these are coming through in an effort to drive on decarbonisation of the power sector. And I appreciate I'm specific, you know, keep focusing on, 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 on the power sector. I think The corollary to that is any electricity investment is probably 15 to 20 years. Okay. And with that time frame, it's very difficult for investors because of the transition that's happening and the policy shift, rightly, that's happening towards decarbonization. It's difficult to make a business case to invest in assets that could conceivably be stranded because of policy decisions. And I suppose we're at that part of the perfect storm where we need more security of supply 
and yet policy is making it very difficult unless you look at the likes of say biomass or something like that sustainable biomass to give you firm capacity so that didn't quite answer your question regarding how is ireland doing but again i think we've made tremendous progress in the time uh, that we've had i think our the carbon intensity from about 2005 of the power system has halved it's gone from about 650 down to 350 there thereabouts that's an achievement in itself now there's still a way to go but the marginal cost to, to half that again will need considerable investment and and we are seeing we are seeing some uh storage technologies the potential for hydrogen to deliver but in saying that it will be difficult and there may need to be some investment in some low carbon fossil generation in the next wee while to keep the lights on. I mean, as, as Echelon, we, we have said this, we've said halfway house solutions will be necessary and they will be potential gas generation. And, and I think I think to be fair as well, that transitional approach has been recognised by the Commission, the EU Commission as well, and their approach to the uh, package of legislative uh, instruments around uh, the new Green Deal. So, yeah, it's it's not ideal, but we are talking about a paradigm shift in terms of uh, how we uh, power our lifestyles and how we power our society. And I, I, I think that will need some time to transition. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, Echelon, obviously, we, we are looking at, uh, we signed a partnership with an anaerobic digestion company producing biogas. Uh, and we've also looked at, on our site in Arclo, we've looked at hydrogen generation because we've got copious clean water uh, and we've got 520 megawatts of wind energy coming off uh, the Arclo Bank wind farm. I was talking to the managing director of Biocore, this biomass uh-huh. company. And they said he said that 250 uh, reasonably sized biomass plants or anaerobic digestion plants in Ireland could produce as much as 25% of Ireland's gas needs. And at the moment, I think we've got three or four. So there's obviously something holding it back. What do you think? In, in relation to anaerobic digestion or hydrogen? And, and, and indeed to hydrogen as well. Yeah, I, I think on the anaerobic digestion is scale, okay, in terms of scale stroke logistics and infrastructure in getting the feedstock to the facility. That's an issue. I mean, no one farm, no one collector would get all the material. It is a biological process, so it does need to be curated as opposed to managed or sort of husbandry around an anaerobic digester. And and I think getting the supply chain in place to put a value on that, it's like wind a number of years ago uh, and other technologies. You're introducing new technologies into a marketplace where there's already an established use for that feedstock, albeit you know, I'm not, not an expert on, on land spreading or whatever happens to a lot of these materials, but it needs to be incentivized to allow the investment be made and the cost, the additional costs of the logistics and the supply chain be recovered before those investments can be made. And I think that fundamentally with anaerobic digestion, that's the issue you're going to have because you, you, whatever about hydrogen, the technology in anaerobic digestion is very well established. 
you know, it, it is a relatively simple process. There is some capex, but if you keep it well fed <laughs> with material, then the process is self-sustaining in that sense. With, with hydrogen, 90% of hydrogen, I believe, is consumed on site. 90% of the world's hydrogen is consumed on site at the moment. And probably the technology again and the thermodynamics around creating hydrogen from clean water is very well understood. Appreciate there could be improvements in the processing and how one handles it. But probably where the challenge works or the challenge there is in relation to uh, building capacity around the network to handle hydrogen and to uh, find end uses, commercial end uses for it. So there, there are two separate challenges for anaerobic digestion and the methane, the biomethane that's generated and the hydrogen that's generated by electrolysis. So, so they have different challenges in terms of them being commercially deployed, but that won't happen unless there's investment in pilots and trial and learnings from both of these technologies. And I think it is important that there's some ambition shown in supporting these particular alternatives. Because as I said earlier, it's not going to be one single silver bullet that gets us to the next step, okay, that gets us fully decarbonized. It's going to be the systems approach to meeting the demands of our energy requirements. The, the word that you've used throughout this discussion has been transition and transitioning. And for me, that implies that it's work in progress and it's going on and it will take time. I can't help but feeling, however, that there's a pressure from organisations like uh, Greenpeace, Friends of the Irish Environment, Stop Climate Chaos and Tashka. You hear them and see them every day in the media talking about how things have got to happen now. It's got to happen now. They want to wake up tomorrow morning and find it's all fixed. And of course, that isn't going to happen. And it strikes me that maybe their way of going about things is actually potentially more creating of harm than it is of good. I don't know whether you'd agree with that. This is a difficult question uh, to answer. And to be fair, I think it would be appropriate if I don't speak about individual organizations or some of the campaigns, but maybe talk about and offer thoughts on general comments around the, the role and operation of environmental NGOs. And I suppose in the first instance, I think we maybe have to go back in time a little and look at the genesis of the environmental NGOs, born out of the 60s and 70s, where there was a sort of top-down legal approach to, dare I say, nearly single-issue campaigns, be that in terms of pollution, wildlife protection, take, for example, the banning of DDT or whaling and things like that. There were issues that were self-contained in their own right. Okay. And I suppose one of the things that climate isn't is a single issue. Okay. Again, it gets back to this systemic, system-wide approach to climate that you just can't simply have the traditional command and control at a top level and say, you can't do this anymore. That worked for banning the likes of DDT. It worked for a whaling moratorium, but it's not going to work and bring people along in terms of 
the much more complex issue of climate change or climate chaos. And, and, and what's not been addressed in these messages are, again, getting back to where we started, the, the social and governance aspects of what this is going to mean for people. OK, now it's exactly the right thing to do, focusing on the planet, but it's failing to deliver because it's ignoring people and people need their lifestyles and the profit that economies need to allow people to have lifestyles. So I think it's important that there's a more holistic approach to how environmental NGOs explain their position rather than, as I said, a 1970s, 1980s, don't do that type approach there. It needs to be a broader approach than what worked in the past. I agree. I mean, I, I think I think that, that there's one thing that I have got out of this discussion. I've got a lot out of it, I have to say, but um, the one thing is, is that, they, that there is, there is hard line on both sides. Sustainability treads a very fine and narrow line between the profit and the bottom line and the social and the environmental um, and the ethical. And that the debate probably needs to be more, more nuanced, really, uh, I think. And if, if there was sort of, sort of, if there was sort of some one final thought that you would leave us with in, in terms of, you know, with a sustainability, what is it? Where are we going with this? I read recently that we're moving out of the information age into the reputation age. And I think notwithstanding my comments about NGOs needing to take a more holistic view and take sort of economic and people considerations into their viewpoint, I think society and people and the fact that we're the, the interconnectedness and how quickly reputations of organizations can be made and broken will see societal pressure come on and maybe succeed in driving businesses in a way that the NGOs, while they were successful in the past on the single issue topics, I think we're beginning to see an embedding of societal catalysts for organizations. And I think organizations that don't listen and don't read read the room, so to speak, in terms of what their potential customers, their stakeholders are saying, I think won't survive. And I think that's what it means to be sustainable. <laughs> Words of wisdom. John, thank you very much indeed for sharing your time and your insights with us. It's, it's genuinely fascinating. And I think we just need to bear in mind that we're transitioning. We're getting there, but it might take a bit of time. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been a pleasure. Power and Responsibility. The Data Center Podcast is brought to you by Echelon Data Centers, a company delivering large-scale data center assets that are more cleanly and sustainably powered now, moving towards 100% renewable green energy in the future. Echelon currently has six facilities under development in Ireland and the UK, with a potential combined capacity of around 500 megawatts. (laughs) 